Welcome to the School of Wellbeing podcast. I am your host, Meg Durham, wellbeing speaker, educator, and coach. I have taught and worked in schools across metropolitan and regional Australia, and I am dedicated to supporting big-hearted educators to prioritise their wellbeing and take courageous action despite the everyday pressures of school life. Because I want educators to know, you don't have to sacrifice your health, relationships, and happiness to be a great teacher. Together, we are going to learn the lessons to help us teach well and be well. Let the learning begin. Hello and welcome to episode 74 of the School of Wellbeing podcast. What does it mean to be a lifelong learner? What are the optimal conditions for learning? And how does wellbeing play a role in all of this? These are just some of the questions today's guest, Luca Parry, has spent time thinking deeply about. But before we get to today's conversation, I wanted to let you know that enrolments for Energy by Design, my game-changing wellbeing program for educators, are about to close. If you're looking to boost your energy and reclaim your spark this term, join me for Energy by Design. It's a four-week circuit breaker experience for busy and big-hearted educators that are ready for more energy, clarity, and confidence. To learn more, see the show notes for details. Now on with today's show. Luca Parry is the CEO of The Learning Future and is committed to transforming learning structures, systems and societies that better empower individuals to develop the key human capabilities that matter most now and into the future. Luca is a rapid learner. He speaks five languages, has visited over 80 countries and holds two master's degrees and has completed executive studies at Harvard and a residency at the D School at Stanford University. Through his work, he has acquired expert knowledge in leadership, strategy, communication, well-being, and organizational change and culture. As an education leader, he was promoted to principal at the age of 27, and in 2012, he was named South Australian Inspirational Public Secondary Teacher of the Year. In this episode, we discuss how learning can unlock potential, what are the optimal conditions for learning, how we can move towards more human-centered structures, and so much more. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Luca Parry. Luca, welcome to the School of Wellbeing podcast. Thank you, Meg. It's great to have finally made it here. Thanks for the invitation. Today, we're going to explore learning and how it's evolved and the potential that we all have, regardless of age, to be thriving, lifelong learners. What sparked your curiosity in this space? I guess it's my own unique experience with the power of learning, I would say. It's my strong belief that learning is what makes us most human in that it's multidimensional, it's transformative. It is the way that we make sense of ourselves and of the world. In my own journey to become an educator, I really has found myself in all these different situations, particularly on my gap year or two across Europe, in seeing what learning can unlock within us. And at individual and also at collective levels. And so it's amazing that I almost studied commerce instead of an education arts degree with a languages specialization. I mean, it's just funny for that to have been a potential pathway. So what's brought me to this work is trying to answer the question, what might be mine to do? And clearly it is, I think it's articulating powerfully and helping to co-design environments, spaces, organizations, where learning meets its promise which is for each of us to really find, build, 
experiment our way forward and feel part of something greater than ourselves. And so that's why the language we both use, Meg, like thriving, flourishing, becoming, well-being, wellness, whatever it is, there's something about learning, I think, is the base plate that unlocks that for all of us. And it's interesting that you highlight how powerful learning can be to unlock our potential. So when learning is at its best, what does it look like? Firstly, just some terminology, I guess. I think when I speak about learning, I'm not speaking about education, nor am I speaking about schooling. And we should make a distinction between those three different concepts, in my view, because they've actually all emerged from different places. Learning for me is something that is intrinsic. It's built into who we are. It is inextricable from the human experience. And so great learning is precisely that. We feel great learning. We don't just think about it. We don't just consider it. It is ultimately cognitive and intellectual, but it's never solely that. I have many functioning hypotheses, you know, that continue to be disproven. But one I think I would stand behind, Meg, is this idea that great learning that transforms us is social, emotional, and cognitive. There's a convergence. Learning is a social act. We do it in relationship with constructs, with concepts, but also with each other. You know, how do we make sense of this together? That's a social question. How does it make us feel? What's the emotional tone as part of this learning arc? And then, of course, what new knowledge has been built? What connections have been made? Of course, that can lead into ways that we can contribute to the economy, to our communities, to the world more broadly. And so it's a great question that I often ask as well as an educator is, what's the most powerful learning experience you've ever had? And that's a really amazing reflection for all of us. I would posit that no one will say something that wasn't social, emotional, and cognitive. In fact, we can even add to that embodiment and even a spiritual transcendent component, which is it was bigger than myself. I was part of something. I was in this team. I was in a musical. We created this project together. We, we built this new prototype. You know, we built a functioning model of X. Or y. You know, it's something about that. I think there's really good articulations and wonderful work happening internationally about this, but it's always deep. So one of my sayings, Meg, is, you know, learning for all of us is lifelong, but it's also life-wide. What's happening outside of formal education settings and critically, it's also life deep. There's something that we go bravely beyond the surface. It's not a nice conversation. It's a kind conversation. It's real talk. We're getting to the good stuff that is so often... I think, unexplored. You know, how do you feel right now? How socially connected are you? What's your sense of contribution to the world, to your community? How do you feel physically? What are your vitality factors? Like all of those questions should also accompany the great questions that we've always asked in schooling systems, which are things like, well, what do you think? What do you know? Show me what you know. Let's assess that. Those are great, fantastic cognitive foci, but... There's something about really expanding so that we can be fully seen, fully heard, fully known. And I think when we do that, we create the right psychological safety. We can even step in with courage and fail more aggressively. But perhaps in a way where, you know, and this of course is character works, you know, when we're in a growth mindset, but even like a benefit mindset, we do this together. Ash Buchanan's wonderful work out of Melbourne. There's some of my reflections, Meg, I could kind of, you know, the key themes here are it's multidimensional, it's multi-factor, it's held within a, what you might call a, a social container, if we use that kind of language, 
there's a culture that's created that's often held by a facilitator, a guide, an educator, a teacher. Those are all my direct experiences about learning that's really transformed me. It goes beyond just the mind, the wonderful intellect that we all are very lucky to have and to utilize. And it goes a little deeper into the social fabric of relationship. And as you're speaking, Luca, I can feel that difference in my own body, that feeling of really getting something, that whole body, yes, I understand this, I'm feeling this, I am learning this, I am living this, compared to that more shallow experience of I've just got to get through the test. I've just got to know this for a moment and then I don't need it. It's not in my system. It doesn't feel that depth. It's really quite shallow. Mm, it's a beautiful reflection. And yeah, this life deep aspect to it, you know, and be it new pedagogies for deeper learning, all the different frames, big picture schools. And it's such of how do you do less and do it more powerfully? How do we do less in life and do it with more presence? You know, I've been heavily influenced, you probably hear in my language, by people like Alan Watts and Ram Das and no, so not just from the psychological side, of which I'm also very nerdy, I have to be honest, but also from kind of what are we hearing from other traditions, other wisdom traditions, including First Nations, where I've spent a lot of my education career actually learning alongside and educating within those, those contexts. Yeah, there's something about embodiment. And I, I would even be a bit stronger than that. I find the moment we're in right now within our rapidly, you know, as an education futurist, constantly aspiring to understand more of this. There's this idea that change has never been, it's such, such a cliche, right? Today is the, the slowest change will ever be against the fastest it's ever been. And so it's this paradox, right? The danger of this, of course, alongside the wonderful increased access that will come from converging exponential technologies is the increased virtualization of our world, the increasing disembodiment. And so, you know, if we all just plug ourselves into the metaverse, I think that's going to be wonderful and there'll be wonderful experiences. And I'm kind of very pro some of those transformative experiences. But also, if it's designed in the wrong way, we might just end up with a completely disembodied generation. And there's something about feeling grounded in your body, which I'm a little obsessed about. I'm very curious about, you know, how do we do things like mindfulness and meditation or breath work or yoga? You know, like these are things that we know. If you look at the age of anxiety in which we currently live, and you look at some of the mental health data, now we need to be very careful about what we allow into our consciousness and certainly into our learning systems and our classrooms as well. Because if COVID's taught us anything, it's that it's not just about thinking. It's not just about academic achievement. That's not success. What is the point? As I often quip, what's the point of getting 99.95 in your ATAR, the Australian Tertiary Admissions Rank, and feeling alone, feeling despondent or in despair or not having beautiful relationships or, or actually being overweight or being physically unwell, having a sense of rudderlessness or lack of purpose. No one could describe that narrow view of success. If we take this new expanded definition, no one can really stand by that. It's a, it's a subset. We still want rigor. We still want academic expansion and achievement, performance, but not without considering everything else that makes us who we are as human beings, human-centered education models, human-centered social society in a human-decentered economic and ecological world. And so that really, I think, one of my missions in life, Meg, it's how do we elevate the human being in our education and employment systems, all social systems, frankly, all the parts that make us who we are. How do we look at the cutting-edge science from neuroscience, performance science, whatever it is, right? The effective neurosciences. 
But at the same time, we need to decenter ourselves in our ecologies. Because if we think we can have things like externalities in economic models, we're kidding ourselves. And I think you know, as we enter late stage cannibalistic capitalism, we're going to have to powerfully evolve that. And that's happening with ESG and benefit corporations. But there's something about orientation, a thrivability orientation that I think is, a, is becoming the new narrative in education. So I'm optimistic that we might get there. And what you're highlighting is a tension that so many educators are faced with, this tension of academics, curriculum, having to get through the content, moving towards those assessments at the end of the year, moving towards that number that every school has the shiny brochures out, how many got this mark, how many got this mark, without the whole story. So you've got that traditional rules of working in education, very formal. It's about the number. We can give you that number at the end. We can pat ourselves on the back, move on. But that tension now of, hang on, but at what cost? That number doesn't necessarily mean you're a good or bad person. It doesn't necessarily mean that we've developed character. Like, What is it that we want our young people to graduate with other than a score? This is a tension that we're all trying to grapple with and move forward and evolve the way that we function within systems so we're not just graduating with a number, we're graduating with a skill set to lead into the future that's completely unknown. I would say, and it's most simple, it's the capacity to learn is what matters most. It's our capacity to continually evolve, bring in new skill sets, not least of all because you look at any of the mega trends. This idea of us being learners for life, we always had talked about lifelong learning, but it's never been more important than right now. We have seen some universities and even companies when looking at the micro-credential space and they're talking about currency. And what you say is this skill set, you know, you do this design thinking module that has a currency of five years, which means after five years, you're going to need to, whatever the new methodology will be, right? So, so this idea that we can just, I understand why it happened in Australia. And Australia is only one of the few places where we have this single number, but not one of the only. Well, Learning Creates Australia has been trying to work on this in particular. It's been a project that I've been involved in quite closely for the last few years now. And the narrative that how do you go beyond the ATAR era here in Australia? And that means thinking differently about credentials and components of the recognition system itself. Because the hypothesis there is if you can shift that, it unlocks top down like the brilliance of educators. When I was teaching secondary school in South Australia, yeah, you know, you have task design. And of course you want your young people to succeed. And if so, if the design is, well, they have to succeed on this task, we're going to help them to do that. And of course that narrows and corrupts, in my view, the expansiveness that education should be. And I mean, I just want to also note that we are like two weeks, we're in December, we're recording this in December. And two weeks ago, we had one of the most transformational shifts in our culture, because what we had released is chat GPT. And this is an AI that passes the Turing test easily, and we can converse with, and it has made redundant, I would almost say, vast majority of product assessment in our secondary education systems globally, which is to say now I can get AI to write pretty well all of my assignments if the assessment is just to look at the final product. 
but what, how, well, how does this change education? Well, it will, tra- it has to, it will transform it. It either disrupts it or it transforms it. And what it means is it all needs to be about process now, relational, social, emotional, and cognitive. That's what we need to focus on. And so I guess to return to your initial question, how might we go about this? Well, we start to think about the, the truly human aspects. We start to look at learner profiles, learner portfolios, learner passports, learner wallets. There's really fragmentation, you can tell in that space, right? Those elements are going to be really important for us to try to create sovereignty and mobility and usability as well. As we think about schools dissolving and emerging as learning ecosystems. You know, as Keynes once said, the economist, that it's not so much adopting the new ideas, it's letting go of the old ones. And so this idea of letting go of an old way of doing, being, teaching, learning is very difficult for all of us in every single part of our life, might I add. Relationships, whatever, you know, job roles, all of it. And yet it's gonna, we're going to be called to constantly reinvent ourselves across the course of our lifespans, which hopefully do increase depending on how we treat our planet. I guess those are some of my reflections from a shift in the recognition system, which is a tangible change that we are seeing happening nationally and internationally towards this idea of a transcript. Of course, those transcripts will then need to be mediated through AI, how they intersect into the employment ecosystem and other parts of this. Check out learningcreates.org.au, you know, for anyone listening to find some really interesting research that, that we've been doing at Learning Creates Australia. But I really feel like to close up this mini rant is, you know, you look at the change that's happened in Victorian education. You know, you look at, and for those of you that who are listening that don't know, Victoria has quite a focus on education. And there's a thing called the Framework for Improving Student Outcomes, FISO, for those in the know. And I know that you're part of this ecosystem, Meg. So what happened with that is that the minister at the time, James Molino, kind of brought together a group of experts and said, okay, COVID's happening. What is success for us? How it might it be different? And so it, FISO now, the framework, the center, the goal of education in Victoria, Australia, is no longer learning achievement. It's now learning and well-being. And I know that's just another word, but that, and I'm speaking to leaders across Victoria, oh, it's like a collective size. Like, great. Now the system says we can focus on these other dimensions. We can't have high-performing academics without you know, the ability to self-regulate, ability to kind of be in social relationship, to understand, you know, consent education, gender role, you know, all these other aspects. And so I'm kind of optimistic. I think there are these kind of these steps forward that we take, in particular after disruption. And I think the new AI, you know, aspect will be part of this disruption. It might just take us a little while to get there. That's kind of my reflection on how we move beyond the tyranny of cognitive obsession. Thinking is great. I'm all for thinking. I've done lots of it. I've done lots of study. (laughs) And embodiment and social relationship and emotional tone and vitality factors, sleep, exercise, nutrition, things that you talk about, Meg, through your work as well. And this is what gets me so excited to think about education moving from quite a 2D model to this 3D and rich model where we are human beings in human systems working together, collaborating together and learning the art of being with other humans because that's what really struck me when I started teaching is that I knew my content. So I knew that 2D piece. I had that sorted, but I didn't understand the human context. 
and also working with educators now, supporting them in this area because we haven't had formal training. So there can be some real resistance to it because a teacher may feel like, oh, no, I don't want to touch that human part because I'm a science teacher or a math part. So we're really trying to work with educators, work with the community. To like We're all human. We're all a part of it. We can't uh, separate our humanness from how we're learning and how we're being in classrooms. Beautifully put. I agree with you fully. I think one reflection I would add here is there is no such thing as a science teacher or a maths teacher. I'll be, I'll be a bit bold and controversial. Those things don't exist. They're constructs. What we are are, are learning guides, facilitators, educators of fellow human beings. And that fellow word is important. It's not just of human beings because then we forget ourselves. And that's why things like student well-being movement, I think, is incomplete. It's a human flourishing, human thriving movement because otherwise we forget about the, the adults who have dedicated their lives often, if not five years of their life, to trying to inspire and uplift and equip fellow human beings as they themselves progress. And so that's, that's what I would add. I think the idea, like as a Ashanti Branch, who is a beautiful, beautiful human being and, and works in healthy masculinity out of Oakland, California runs a thing called the Ever Forward Project, helping men to take off their masks and heal, frankly. He would say, if you care more about the subject that you teach than the subject who you teach, then we've lost sight of what education is really for. And so, yeah, content, absolutely. And again, this is, uh, I'm not trying to be dualist here. I'm post-dualist, right? It's not an either or proposition. It's a both and proposition. It's, yeah, I teach a human being. They have all these different needs, particularly right now, particularly because of the impact of, I would say, extractive technologies like social media. You know, we have lots and lots of evidence about the damage that that is doing to our young people and to ourselves as a subset of technology. So how do we think about everyone being human? And then, yes, always have rigorous, structured, intentional, explicit and direct at times methodologies that we deploy around content. As I think Charlie Fidel would say, right? And I really like his work from the Center for Curriculum Redesign at Harvard. And he has this beautiful model where he just says, we start at the wrong place. We start with, what do I need to teach? What skills might be developed? What capabilities or character development will occur because of that? And then what's kind of the, the real world assessment example? I mean, I think about my own teaching, Meg, and gosh, I do things a bit differently. Now. But you know, there was a time I'm like, okay, what does the curriculum say I need to teach? Okay, cool. What skills might I do that? Like what might be my pedagogic approach? Okay, like can I do some character stuff? And then, yeah, let's do an assignment. Let's write a letter to the local member. Or, whatever, or let's build a little project here. We start at the wrong place. Where we should start is what's needed right now. What's relevant, even though that's a word that perhaps doesn't conceptualize exactly what we're talking about. What's needed, what's possible right now that connects people to the environment around them? What character development do we want? What skill development do we want? And then critically, what high quality content do we ensure is the vehicle for these skills, this character development? capability development and real world learning to take place. I mean, people that say we don't need, people say it's only about skills. I don't think I understand the learning sciences. They don't understand learning sciences. How can you learn a skill without a context and without content? And often it's, you know, it's the techie types, many of whom are my friends and I love dearly, that say, oh, no, it's just, you just need skills. You don't need content. No, no, that's not true. This is, we understand cognitive load theory. Unless you have some level of automaticity around decoding language, even just reading, yeah, you're not going to be able to perform very well. So there are things that we must know. And once we've reached a threshold, however, 
like then we should become autodidactic and we should be deploying these tools that technologies are gifting us, these AI tools that actually augment learning experiences, you know, don't not replace the educator and these all encompassing tutoring systems, which, you know, are coming online and will actually challenge, I think, some of the existing education spaces. That's not, for me, that's not a fully human education anymore. We've kind of outsourced the, the most important parts. I don't know how you can do character development well without human interaction, without Socratic seminar and dialogue, discussion and the messiness, the beautiful messiness that is a space within a human system, a classroom, an environment, a school, a university, a company, an organisation. The visual that comes to my mind is trying to teach someone to swim outside of a pool. So, yes, you can go through the movement, but you don't experience what it's like to be buoyant in the water and have the water in your nose, in your mouth. It's all over the place. And these immersive experiences are so important and to create rich environments where we all feel like we can be buoyant, but also make progress. Yeah. And I do like buoyancy as a concept as well, you know, how it pertains to resilience and everything else. Do we come back up when the wave smashes us? You know, like, I hope so. And the other way I would articulate this is it's the difference between teaching and learning that I think, again, many theorists have spoken really powerfully about, especially across Australian universities, but it's actually not about teaching. It never has been. It's about the learning. The old cartoon, Spike cartoon is a dog. He says, uh, two people standing there and one says to the other, I taught Spike how to whistle. And Spike is the dog. And the, and the other person says, I don't hear Spike whistling. And the first guy says, oh, I taught him. I didn't say that he learned it. And that's just such a simple and silly way to understand the difference between learning and teaching. And that actually our focus always needs to be on learning, on knowing our impact, to quote John Hattie. You know, like, like how do we actually know that what we've done, the experience we've created has led us to the right type of outcome? But I would caveat that is that what outcomes are we talking about? And I think so much of the evidence base we have, it's on academic outcomes because that's been the focus, been cognition. And it's only now that we're starting to understand things like emotional intelligence. I mean, you know, EQ really has only been popularized since 95, right? And now we're in this world of AQ, adaptability quotient, or the one that I've learned recently, which is BQ, which is body intelligence. And there is something I think really powerfully, I'm quoting Jamie Wheel here, but body intelligence, BQ before EQ, right? Interoception. Do I understand what's going on in my body? in terms of the physiology, right? Or the neurochemistry. You know, if I have, if I'm constantly on amygdala hijack, have adrenal fatigue, there's too much allostatic load and stress in my life. Yeah, it's pretty hard for me to empathize with you, Meg, because I can't self-regulate. I'm dysregulated. And so BQ before EQ and EQ before IQ. And of course, what we've done is just kind of, we're still unwinding that kind of academic aspect as someone that, you know, has two master's degrees and an undergrad and a diploma. I love that part of myself. And I love the fact that we can explore and be innovative and intellectual. But my own personal journey has been actually remembering embodiment. And it's, it's not about, can I say what I mean? It's, can I be who I choose to be? That's a much deeper and I'd say higher bar that I need to hold myself to. Am I choosing to be in this moment, the person that I would like to be in my life and all the social change makers, you know, the Gandhis and the Mandelas, Maya Angelis. That's what they talk about. It's how people feel around you that matters, that's remembered more than anything else. That's not what I say. That's actually who I'm being. And so there's an interesting thing that I'm still doing the work on there. 
I would say. And that brings me to this beautiful teacher that I worked with in Queensland, a maths teacher in a secondary school. And I remember her one day saying, Mick, I'm just a maths teacher. And I looked at her and thought, you've got to be kidding me. You are the most vibrant, embodied, present human I have ever come across. If I walked into your class, I would be engulfed by your presence and the maths would be a bonus because I'd feel so safe to be with you. This is it. This is right. Like imagine an educator and we do this and I have to say fellow educators listening, we do ourselves a disservice. We should never say the word just. You know, I really would like you to honor yourself for the impact that you make in people's lives under very difficult systemic conditions. I imagine, isn't it outrageous that we say just, I'm just a maths teacher. I mean, without judgment, from a place of love. I mean, this, this, clearly this educator is phenomenal. It's just like so many of us are when we give our full selves to this very complex role that underpins all future prosperity for our world, let alone our country. Oh, but by the way, I'm just a math teacher because of course she's not. She's a transformative educator that's using maths as the vehicle. And this is why I think increasingly, like we should stop self-identifying through our subject. I know that's difficult, but it's I'm an educator and I'm very excited about maths. And so I use that as the way to engage in fully human development processes. Rigorous cognition in addition to social and emotional learning in addition to embodiment and kind of purpose or life design questions that I think formulate all of that. But isn't that great? You know, the embodied piece. Think back to that question. You know, we asked, like, what's the most powerful learning experience you've ever had? I'll tell you what, it's going to be someone that is embodying their own curiosity, their own love of learning. You know, that simple thing, maybe it's only three simple things that we need to be a great educator. A love of learning, a love of young people or adults if you're an adult educator and a love of, of a particular topic or theme or domain. Those three things, you know, kind of like the base plate for everything else <laughs> in some ways. Because, you know, teachers that don't like children shouldn't be teaching. <laughs> I just think it's a pretty obvious statement. And of course, no one goes into teaching saying, I don't like kids or I don't like learning process. No, we go in because we're called to it or we see a potential in it. Even if it's not calling, we see our ability to contribute. I would say it's so disheartening. In fact, it's so outrageous that so many wonderful educators get into positions where they feel that what they do doesn't matter such that we demean ourselves, supposed to uplift ourselves and each other. Society does us no favors, of course, in Australia. If you can't do, you teach. If you can't teach, you teach PE. Well, I'm a PE teacher amongst other things. But, you know, there's this, but also like, no. What are you talking about? If you can't do, if you can't teach, you do, right? Because anybody that's, that's been in a situation where they are holding a learning process for 25 to 30 young people, all with unique needs, all with a six to seven year difference in their content and skill knowledge at a particular point in time, anyone that's done that does not feel that way about education. They really don't. You know, make the other love, the saying I really like is like teaching isn't brain science. No, no, far more complex than that. Far more complex. And can you imagine a surgeon with 25 people or, or a GP, you know, represent GP, you know, great. But 25 people in a room all trying to diagnose their individual 
next point of need. I mean, that is why it's literal magic what goes on. And I liked your language before, Meg, the art. This is a, it's a science, it's an art, and it's a craft. I think it's multiple things. The science of teaching, yes, the science of learning, but actually the art and the craft, the magic that occurs when somehow you're in this moment and the bell rings and no one moves. Like, and this has happened to me like, I don't know, a handful of times in my, in my life. And you just go, wow, what's happening right now is actually magic. We are in this moment. It's flow, the technical definition of flow. It's like, we're just locked in into this deep curiosity, the things that make us most human, that I think it's an act of love. Like, I think it's an act of structured love, which I learned from Charlie Ledbetter. You know, it's this deep care, the divinity that we might see in each other. You know, I meet you as you are, as another human being and structure. And I can see that we can progress this. This is why it's always rigorous. I'm not a fan of laissez-faire free time. We should never give free time in schools. That's lazy. It should always be structured and loving, but never one or the other. I'm going to be Paolo Freire now as well. This is like all of these people have informed my worldview about education through the work that I now do. And I'm just so grateful for all of it. And I'm just so grateful that we have hundreds of thousands of educators that are doing the work that they do. And my commitment to every single one of you is that I'm doing my small bit to try to unlock your true genius, your ability to do extraordinary work by shifting the systems in which we function, by shifting the level of status of what it means to be an educator in Australia, in the Western world. Yeah, my small bit for sure. But, but all the same, that's my commitment. So if you could give educators listening one bit of advice or potentially permission to do something, what would it be? Don't take advice from others. That's my advice. <laughs> I actually try never to give advice, Meg, unless it's actively sought because advice creates a power dynamic. What I'm more interested in is what is the question that you're most curious about right now? What is lighting you up? What is holding you in a particular place? That would be the advice. Go towards that. Stay as curious as possible. Allow your inner child to delight in the joy of learning. That's a reflection. And the permission piece, think about one thing that doesn't serve you right now. It might be an internal narrative that you have. It might be a relationship. It might be pressure that you put on yourself. It might be a vice, you know, or a habit that you would like to move beyond. Give yourself permission to let go of that thing. And I would say do it using some of the science here in a ritualistic way. So write it on a piece of paper, go somewhere in your world and then like light it on fire, burn it or put it somewhere or send, throw the stone into the ocean, like send it back to where it came from because we all hold onto things that do not serve us. And in the critical work that you do as an educator and as a leader, as an innovator, we society, we need all of us to be at our absolute best, deepest, truest selves. So give yourself permission just to let go of one thing that no longer serves you. Luca, to wrap up this incredible conversation, I'd love to invite you to complete four sentences. Are you up for that? I default to yes. I'm working on my positive no, but yes, Meg, let's do, let's go for it. I am inspired by. I am inspired by the small moments of connection and presence that I witness through my work and through my life like moments of kindness that are chosen and 
I think we see this everywhere. I think being an educator, I think, gives us access to be able to display those small acts of kindness that can literally shift someone's trajectory all their day. So that's what inspires me, these small, unknown acts of extraordinary kindness. When life feels hard. Take a deep breath in. Return, return to your body. Do the first thing that you did when you entered this life. And this is why, you know, with thousands of years of tradition from, in, from the East in particular about the power of breath. And it's all being, of course, validated by polyvagal theory and, you know, parasympathetic nervous system relaxation response. When life feels hard, take a deep breath. In fact, do box breathing. Breathe in for four, hold for four and breathe out for four and hold for four. I do this in every keynote nowadays, Meg. It's like, why? Because it helps me as well. But, you know, this idea, when life feels hard, remember to breathe and return to yourself and then choose to respond in a way that is in alignment with the life you want to live, with the educator you want to be, with the person you choose to be. An underrated skill is? Listening. Holding space is another way we might talk about this. Creating a social container. Listening is the most underrated skill, especially when we look at technologies like Twitter. Everyone talking, no one listening, right? Everyone just yelling at each other. You know, like how do we, the art of relationship, how do we disagree better? Well, the only way to do that is to be able to listen. And a question that I often reflect on is, are you willing to change your mind through our conversation? Am I willing to change my mind? If the answer to either of those two questions is no, there is no need for the conversation. How might we become better listeners and get to the deepest level of listening, which Otto Sharma would say is generative listening, really with an, not just open mind, not just with an open heart, but with an open will to literally change how I might behave because of the conversation. If a conversation doesn't leave you changed in some way, what a wasted opportunity, don't you think? And I'm looking forward to meeting my future self is what's present for me. So what I'm looking forward to is the playfulness of seeing if I can become the person I'm trying to become, right? Yeah. And I think particularly as, you know, I move into my birthday, which is in between Christmas and New Year. So it's always a, it's a deep moment of reflection. It's celebrating the past, but also looking towards the future. And so I am looking forward to being an agent in my life and in the world and seeing if I can, how close might I get to the preferred future? Luca, thank you so much for sharing your insights, reflections with us, because it's given us a lot to think about as we move forward with our teaching, our learning, our pedagogy, to move towards that depth, that connection, that richness that is available to us if we're embodied and present enough. So thank you for your work and thank you for being guest on the School of Wellbeing podcast. Meg, thank you for what you do. And you're a fabulous interviewer. You hold space so beautifully. Yeah, and it is about what we think about. And remember, it's also how what we feel. Parting reflection is remember to feel as we move into, and, you know, to balance the thinking that we all do. But Meg's been wonderful to finally connect with you as well. So thank you for the work that you do and for this invitation. This conversation has opened your mind and empowered you to take deliberate action in your life so you can feel, function and relate better. To learn more about today's incredible guest and the wonderful work they are doing in the world, see the show notes for all the ways that you can connect. 
If you're ready to reclaim your spark and join me for this round of Energy by Design, my game-changing wellbeing program for educators, see the show notes for more details. If you loved this show, please share it with anyone you think would benefit from listening. Or reach out to me on Instagram or LinkedIn and let me know what resonated most with you. To learn more about the ways that I can help you and your school community thrive, visit my website, openmindeducation.com. There you can book me to speak at your next event, learn more about my game-changing wellbeing programs, or download my free five-step energy guide. You can find all the links in today's episode at openmindeducation.com forward slash podcast. Thank you for listening to this episode of the School of Wellbeing, and I look forward to sharing more heartfelt conversations with you next week.